Well, good morning, everyone. Let me uh, officially welcome you here to Restoration Church. If this is your first time with us, <clears throat> whether that be video like this, or maybe you have touched base with us at some point during the week on our Facebook posts, however it is that you have uh, come across us, we are thankful to have you here today. And if you are a, uh, a Restoration folk who's been with us for you know, the better part of 10 years, we're equally glad to have you. And one of the, I guess you might say, blessings that has come out of this time is how many people we have been able to connect with, not just new faces through this format, but even folks that uh, had worshiped with us for, uh, for a long time and moved away because of jobs or whatever else. And so uh, I'm still thankful, although it's not ideal, and uh, I have a quick announcement I'm going to make here in a moment just about praying for what normalcy looks like for us as we... Uh, as we sort of, you know, hopefully come down on the backside of this corona thing. But I am thankful that we are still able to gather here and be with each other. So um, this time, traditionally, this little space between musical worship and teaching is the time that we use to highlight what, I guess you could call them announcements, but we, we actually feel like these are pretty significant things, uh, oftentimes that highlight the rhythms of worship that take place outside of our Sunday gathering. And Romans teaches us that worship is not just a, a one-hour event on Sunday. It's actually a form of, of living. And everything we do uh, through word and deed, through this hour and through the hours that follow, is an act of worship. And so we try to highlight at times key things that are going on in the life of our community. Uh, and our community is best described as a kitchen table. That's the way we have long described it. What that simply means is if you think of a kitchen table, you have likely had some of the most encouraging and challenging conversations of your life at them, whether you are parents raising children, or you are uh, a child, or a teenager being raised by a parent. The kitchen table sort of signifies a, a common place where we gather, eat together, and spend meaningful quality time with each other. And so restoration is one big kitchen table. And with that said, I want to share with you some of the things that are going on around our table. So perhaps the most obvious is the fact that uh, there's a lot of information floating around right now um, about when and how to restart uh, church. And, you know, we have some significant obstacles ahead of us. We meet in a movie theater, which is still not permitted to be open. And so all I want to do is uh, ask you to continue to pray for wisdom for our leadership. We have a, a weekly discussion about this, about the best way to proceed with the circumstances that we have been given regarding uh, in-person or face-to-face -face worship. Obviously, we want to sort of stand by the teaching I gave at the very beginning of this in 2 Timothy, that we really do not function out of a, a spirit of fear or uh, some type of uh, you know, hyper-response. What we want to do is use wisdom and reason based on what God has given us and what he's showing us. So continue to pray for us as we try to sort that out. And until something changes, we will obviously continue to broadcast like this to you. And, and obviously, we'll continue to do this even when we are face-to-face. -face. I want to highlight that this is not the only time you can get together with us. We spend some time each week in what we call community groups, which are micro-expressions of our larger church. And this is a, a great opportunity uh, for you to get connected to one. All of our groups are still meeting right now. We're doing it, albeit through Zoom. And some groups are going to begin slowly making the transition to having like backyard community groups, open air within the guidelines. 
But nonetheless, uh, I don't want you to think that the only thing happening at Restoration right now is this 60 or 70 minutes on Sunday. Our, our church is actually thriving right now, and I'm very thankful to see the work of the ministry uh, and mission to, to far exceed the boundaries of this time we have here. So please, if you're interested in maybe taking a next step relationally with somebody, uh, let us know that. You can call us, email us, text us, however you want to communicate with us. We can plug you into a group and some folks that will help you uh, just get to know some people better. The last thing I want to say today is that uh, this is obviously what we call holiday weekend in America. It's Memorial Weekend, and I always bring this point up on Memorial Weekend because for the great majority of our country, what, what is looked to for Memorial Day is, is a three-day weekend and uh, celebration and cooking out and all that other good stuff. And I'm not at all trying to take away from, from that holiday, but I just want to remind us what the root of Memorial Day is. And it is a, a memoriam for the men and women who have given their lives uh, over the course of the duration of the history of our country. And so I always challenge our people to just sort of approach this weekend with a bit of reverence and respect. For you, it might be a great cookout on Monday, but for somebody else, this might be a stark reminder of somebody that they have lost in the service to our country. So uh, this is another opportunity where we have the ability to um, to celebrate the light and the life of Jesus in our circles of influence, wherever they are. So all this is is a gentle encouragement to be mindful of of uh, what Memorial Weekend actually represents. Very different than Veterans Day. Uh, really uh, important, I think, that our folks sort of keep that at the top of their minds and in the depths of their hearts. And so, as we move forward today, we're going to pick up this teaching that we've been doing on suffering. And today we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week in John chapter 9, where we read about this story of a blind man who is He's born blind and is suffering. Obviously, he's afflicted with a physical illness that has changed the very trajectory of every aspect of his life. And last week, we pointed out a great irony in this story. The disciples, like most of us, I said, are trying to light up the shadows of suffering. They, where there is darkness and misunderstanding, confusion, they, they want to unravel the mystery, in this case, of why this man is suffering. They want to know the cause of it and the root of it and, and, and what happened that either he did to himself or his parents did to him that, that really brought this upon him. And the interesting thing, the reason why I say this is an irony is for a couple of reasons. The first is that their understanding of, of this situation really shows that they misunderstood to a great degree the character of God when it comes to how we understand suffering. And it actually has more to do with a, a Hindu belief, at least as we know it today, we talked a good bit last week about this idea of karma. And karma is just very common. A lot of people sort of casually adhere to it. And it simply says that if you are a person who does good things, then, then good things will happen to you. And if you're a person who does bad things, then, then at some point bad things will happen to you. And that system sort of sounds great and equitable when it's working, but the problem is that that system inevitably will fail you when bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. That's when the, the sort of equilibrium of commerce sort of gets thrown out the window and we're left with serious questions about our life and our faith. And that's why I wanted to talk about this during these times. And the reason I say this is an irony is because this is a confusion. It's a confused belief system that we see the disciples adhering to. And it's one that lingers to this very day, even inside the church. This is true for some of us who claim to love and follow Jesus. At times, I think it can be very easy for us to look at the things going on in our lives, 
whether they're suffering or pain or good and happy things, we, we sort of look at our lives and say, well, if I'm, if I'm doing good things, if I'm following God, maybe using some of the colloquial ways we see this, if I'm reading my Bible and, and praying and being kind to people, then good things should be happening to me. And, and why is my life so difficult right now if I'm doing good things? Or the opposite might be true. You might be sitting in your living room right now or wherever you are, and you know people in your life that really... You know, I mean this with a lot of love and respect, but maybe they're not the nicest people on earth, but, but they have great things, at least from an appearance perspective, happening in their lives. And so what happens is, is as Christians, if we're, not, if we're not careful, we might subtly be sort of wooed into believing that God works with this sort of motive behind him, that, that God essentially is a God of, of karma. And the way he works is that you put a good coin in, you get two good coins out. You put a bad coin in, at some point you get two bad coins out. And our teaching today and over these past weeks has really been looking at this subject of what we have come to call over the years the problem of suffering. And we talked about this, we began anyways, in the book of Philippians, looking at the Apostle Paul, who, generally speaking, did a lot of very good things for Jesus in his life, but found himself imprisoned falsely in, uh, in a, a prison in Philippi. His captors put him in jail because of his faithfulness to Jesus. And that's a great example of something bad happening to, generally speaking, a good person. Now, in last week, uh, we began looking at this response, this very particular conversation Jesus has with his disciples and the people watching him about their incorrect assumptions of why this man is born uh, suffering with blindness. And we thoroughly unpacked what is perhaps the biggest question that a teaching like this surfaces. This is the question our hearts have to, long to have answered. If God loves us, why is it that there are times in our lives when we suffer? And we answered that question by saying, First and foremost, whenever we address a, a significant matter of life like this, it does us well to know that there is never a simple or pat answer to the question. This is what the disciples want. They, they sort of, in passing, want Jesus to give them a one-sentence response as to why this person is being afflicted like this. Like, hey, he's born blind. What's going on here? Jesus, tell us quickly, and then we'll move on. S suffering especially, as well as love, and some of these deep emotions we feel in life, um, seldom are they able to be described or explained in uh, soundbite type realities. So what happens here is we, we pointed out that this is a complicated issue that requires us to really think. But we also pointed out something very important about the nature of this text. And that is we, we can, to a certain degree, say suffering has a bit of mystery behind it, but it's not a total mystery. The scripture teaches us enough about mystery, the mystery of suffering, to be able to understand some of its roles and purposes and its causes. And what we said last week is that all suffering, no matter what form it takes in life, physical, spiritual, or emotional, all suffering takes place because of sin in general, the fallen nature of humanity. But not all sin takes place because of sin in particular. And that's the main, one of the main ideas, anyways, Jesus is emphasizing here in John 9. The disciples believe that this man is, is suffering because of sin in particular. Either something he did or something his parents did. But Jesus' response is pretty quick to let them know that neither his parents nor this man did anything to merit this suffering. It's, it's a physical ailment because of the general fallen nature of, of humanity. And this begins to rock the world of the disciples as they are having their karma belief, for lack of a better term, challenged. And so, if you did not listen to the teaching last week, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, this is certainly a standalone teaching. You can get a whole lot out of it just by listening to this. 
But the foundation of those ideas, I'm not going to readdress today because there's a, a whole talk online. That foundation, though, is important because it really does frame what we're going to discuss today. Today we're going to move away from, from cause, we addressed that last week, to this idea of hope. Because this is exactly what Jesus does with the disciples. He takes their questions about cause, what made this happen, who made this happen, and after addressing that, he begins to move them to the idea that there actually can be purpose and hope in suffering. I didn't say that suffering is good or it makes us happy, but what he's telling the disciples here is that sometimes the most difficult things we endure in life, the hard times, allow us to see and sense the goodness and the grace of God in ways that we could not have experienced otherwise. And so this truly is a, a long-standing encouragement to look to Jesus during times of difficulty. And the main idea I want to talk about today, it really revolves around us knowing with our minds and deeply believing in our hearts this, this main idea. One idea we're going to talk about, and I'll, I'll share it twice with you just to make sure it has some time to, to penetrate your mind and your hearts. When we talk about difficulties in life, and even the good stuff that goes on in life, the way God works in our lives during difficult times is often very different from how we expect him to work in our lives during difficult times. Let me say that again. The way God works in our lives during difficult times is often very different from how we expect him to work in our lives during difficult times. There's an expectation that we have of the way things should be. And sometimes God is working in ways that really do not take into consideration our expectations. And we see this idea in John 9, 5-7. I'll reread one section of what our worship leader A read to you a few moments ago because it is sort of the, the main truth that we're going to be picking apart today. John chapter 9, verses 5-7, Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is a major theme in the book of John, that Jesus is the light in the life of the world. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, in this story, Jesus uses this blind man's suffering to reveal God's goodness to the world. He literally says, I'm the light and the life of the world. And what I'm about to do is show you how God can really redeem difficult circumstances for good things, how God can, can take a mess and make something beautiful out of it. And in this instance, this is what I find kind of funny, he uses a, a mud and spit mixture to physically and, and later on spiritually restore this man's sight. This is just the beginning of this man's story. He actually comes to faith at some point in the Gospel of John. But Scripture teaches us, especially here in this passage, that all things, including suffering, are things God can and will use to bring about His grace. And the grace revelation in this story is a quick one. This is one of the challenges that I often have with reading the Bible is, you know, this, this story here, we read in a couple of sentences how a, a man who was terminally blind, he had been blind his whole life and would have been blind for the rest of his life, in a matter of sentences, we, we find out that this man is now able to see, right? But think about this. This is a story we read and can move on quickly from. But for this person, this was a cataclysmic event. And what I love about this is that it's, it really shows that uh, we might quickly see that this man was healed. But this man endured the suffering of blindness for, for his whole life. He had the weight of this reality on his back. And what I shared last week is that there are times when... 
God might work quickly in situations where our life is difficult, but sometimes he does not work quickly. Sometimes there's an enduring reality of suffering, or even look at other writings from the Apostle Paul, where we know that he has this thorn in the side. We don't exactly know what it is, but we know that, we, that he asked God to take it away from him multiple times, three times. But God had told him multiple times that I'm, I'm not going to remove this from you. I am going to remind you that, uh, that I'm enough for you during this. So that's a great example of God working in, an, in another way through suffering. Here, God removes the blindness from this man. In the Apostle Paul, he leaves this difficulty that Paul has because it is necessary for him to stay connected deeply to Jesus. And so timing, I, I cannot, nor should we ever try to predict how, I guess maybe the timeline of how God works. But what I want to point out here is that we should know there is never a, a single method or a single way that God uses to bring about his goodness in the world. His, his, work, his work is always done with great variety. And as, as people, I think it's very easy for us to be very myopic, to get very limited and narrow in how we think God should be working or what he should be doing. Or when we look at circumstances, like I, I can just tell you if, you know, I'm not Jesus, please don't hear me saying that, but if I had the capacity to heal somebody, I would probably not have spit in the mud. I would have just healed him. It would have made sense to me to do it that way. But for whatever reason, Jesus does this thing where he mixes his saliva with mud and touches this man and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and, and he heals him. And the point I want to make here is that we should be mindful that God is not limited by the narrow scope of how we see the world. There are going to be times when he is working in ways that we don't agree with. There are going to be times when we might not understand it at all, or we might understand with sort of a partial understanding what he's doing. And that is important to know when we think about God working in our own lives. It's important to know that his character is good. And even if we don't have all the answers in the moment, we have to sort of default ourselves to the fact that God is a good God. And I want to give you an example of how, uh, it's, a, it's a humorous story anyways, but sometimes we as people, we, we actually miss the goodness God wants to bring about in our suffering, in our trials, because we have a very narrow view of the way we think he should handle them. In other words, he does not live up to my expectation of how he should deal with the situation that I'm enduring. And so think about this. In Luke chapter 5, we read another story where Jesus heals a man. Not a blind man, but a man with leprosy, which is a, another terrible lifelong affliction. And in that account, Jesus literally just says to the leper, hey, be clean. That's it. He, he mentions two words, and then that man is instantly healed of leprosy. And so if you would for a moment sort of imagine with me what ha would happen if this blind man that was healed came in contact with this leper that was healed. They heard, healed. They heard of each other's stories, and they, they had a conversation. And so the blind man goes up to the leper, and he says, Hey, man, tell me your story. Uh, tell, me, tell me how Jesus healed you. This is amazing. I, I can see you now. Tell me, tell me what Jesus did in your life to make the leprosy go away. And the leper says, or the former leper says, Well, it was wonderful, but there's not really a whole lot to tell. Jesus just looked at me, and he said, uh, Be clean. And then the next thing I knew, the leprosy was gone. And the formerly blind man looks at him kind of funny, because that's a little confusing, and he says, but what, when did he use the mud? When did he use the mud to make the leprosy go away? And the, the ex-leper says to him, well, what mud? I, I, there was no mud involved in my situation. And the ex-blind man says, you know, when Jesus heals people, he spits on the ground, and he, he makes a mud solution, and then he puts it on the part of your body that is hurt or doesn't feel well, and, and it, it's better. It goes away. 
And the ex-leper is astounded by this. And he says, man, I've met Jesus, and he's a smart guy. He doesn't do stuff like that. That's disgusting. In fact, it's not even sanitary. I mean, come on, it's the year 33. Everybody knows that spit carries a lot of germs. So what Jesus does is he just, he speaks you're clean and you're clean. There's no way I'm going to let that guy rub spit on me, right? Now, you can see how this could very easily become a little bit of a, of a jesting argument. The man who was healed of blindness says, you know what? I don't think you were really healed. Because the way God worked in your life is so different from the way he worked in mine that I don't even know that I could trust it. And there you have one of the first, theoretical anyways, uh, church theological splits in the first century of the world. You have a group of people that think you need spit to heal and a group of people that think you don't need Jesus' spit to heal. And there's a, a tension between these two camps, which you can see in modern-day Christianity. Certain aspects of Christianity or arms of it will look at other arms of Christianity and say, well, that's not legitimate because that's not the way God worked in my life. And while we should always have a discerning spirit rooted in the truth of the Scripture and the accountability of community, it is so easy, I think, for this tension to develop in our lives because in this case, anyways, the point of the story is neither person believes the other's experience with Jesus was real because that experience they had was not the same one they had. And over time, it is very easy for us to just think God is supposed to work a certain way. And usually that way is the way we think he should work. God has had a long history of using methods and people that don't always make sense to us. And logically speaking, there are times when our plans and thoughts seem to make much more sense than the way God appears to be working in our lives. And this is especially true if you're on the other side of a trial or, or a good thing that took place in your life. A lot of times in retrospect, when we look back, at what we wanted or the way we thought things should have happened. If we truly are following Jesus, then we can sort of see that there are times in our past where God does things in different ways for good reason. And this is often the case. The place where I think we find the most tension with this is not in the good things of life, but it's in when we suffer. Because let's be honest, who, who wants to suffer? No one. The point of these things that I've been sharing with you is not to give you a, a false bravado of suffering. It's to equip us with some, some biblical tools of grace to help us understand a little bit of the, the who, what, when, where's, and why's, right? Suffering is something that none of us enjoy. But the Bible teaches us suffering is one of the main things God redeems to mature us and reveal his goodness to us. In other words, that great fall of humanity that took place thousands of years ago that has shaped the world as we know it, since that day, God has been redeeming that fall and bringing beauty out of the mess. And it's amazing how many Christians live as if they do not know this. And I don't say this in a judgmental way. I mean it purely from just the conversational angle. When we think of our relationship with Christ and growing in Jesus, if you've been in, in the church, our church, or connected with a church uh, any, any, in any season of your life, you know, we tend to think the way we grow in Jesus is through a devotional life, is through the, the study of Chris, uh, uh, Scripture. We, we worship with each other. You know, we might uh, hook up with a community group, or we have friends that sort of we, we walk through life with, and we support them, and, and they support us. And a couple of months ago, we'd all be going out to lunch after church. Obviously, we can't fully do that now. We can't like it, I don't know, 35% at 8 feet apart outside. There's some rule for it. But, but we have all of these sort of mechanisms, right? All of these really encouraging and good things that we refer to to grow in Jesus. And they're all wonderful things. They're all part of what makes a church family a church family. However, the point I want to make up here is sometimes we are, we are just so tuned into the safety and the comfort of those things that 
that we can only see God working in those ways. And when that happens, what happens is you and I will start to see God as a, a sort of spiritual ATM. And what we think is the, the more good stuff we put into our faith, I'll, I'll use a business term here, the greater we expect a return of investment. So I should be able to spend 5% of my day studying the Bible, and that should increase my biblical wisdom and peace by 15%, right? That's what we hope in the stock market when we are putting money away and trying to save for our futures. We, we want a return on our investment in life. When, when we invest in something in life, we expect, at least the American ways, to expect that we're going to get a return on it. Some of the greatest stories in life come from people who, who actually took a loss on their investment. It's in those places where God really showed himself in tremendous ways. And so I think generally speaking, what happens is we can, we can get into this, this area of our lives where we think just because we are doing things for God, that God should automatically and without ceasing continue to increase the quality of our life. And that quality is usually restricted to what we think we need. And what I always like to say when we're talking about stuff like this or even our church is that God's imagination is much greater than our imagination. He can see things in our future and in the future of our church that our minds cannot even comprehend. And so if we're going to default to some form of imagination, we should really let it be the God, the, the God of our faith who broadens our horizons to do wonderful things through us in the name of Jesus, rather than us who oftentimes we sort of very myopically expect and desire God to work in, in singular ways. We, we can't think big enough or dream big enough for the future. And this is essentially a karma type of philosophy. This is why I opened by saying it's a bit ironic that to this very day, there are a lot of us walking around believing that what we do should, should merit an equivalent or sometimes greater return from God. And we really can have our faith, our world, our lives rocked if we are doing good things for God and something very difficult happens. This is how we begin to misunderstand the character of God. Now, I want, to, I want to take this idea, this, this, this thing going on with the disciples, how we've sort of relegated this to personal life, and I want to show that if we do not have a place in our hearts for this, if we have no spiritual construct for suffering, then we're going to have challenges. We're really going to crack very easily when life gets difficult. Now, in short contrast, though, listen to what Paul prays in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Here he is praying to know God more deeply. His prayer here is rooted in growing in the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And here's what he asks God for. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That part we're good with, right? That's why we have Easter. And then he goes on to say, and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Yes, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Have you ever thought about this verse, this idea, this truth in light of your faith? We don't have a suffering Sunday like we have a resurrection Sunday, right? That's because the resurrection defines our suffering. But here Paul absolutely equates part of knowing and growing in the grace of Jesus with experiencing some of the stuff that he experienced on earth, of which part of that is suffering. Have you ever thought about the fact that personal suffering, whether we're dealing with it, or even when we suffer for the sake of others, when we sacrificially live for somebody else, that this is not a footnote in Christianity, rather it's sort of at the heart of Christianity. That God can use suffering and pain in this world to, to bring His light and life to the world. 
He can, in other words, bring about glory and good for the world. And it takes a real spiritual maturity to see suffering this way. One that says you've begun to humbly recognize that God's ways are not always your ways or, or my ways. We know his character is to bring about good in the world, but maybe he is bringing it about in ways that we don't necessarily agree with or might even be wholly uncomfortable with. That his methods often have purposes beyond our comprehension to fully understand in the moment, or maybe even ever. Nobody gets through this life having every single question answered. Yet, we have to be the type of people that, that trust in our God. And that's why I keep going back to this idea of, of character. The assumptions the disciples have about this man born blind is that God sort of did something to him because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and got very angry with him. This shows us that the way they understood Jesus' character in that moment, God's character in that moment, wasn't exactly right. And I'll even take this a step further when it comes to the sort of maturity bend I'm trying to link with how we see and endure suffering. It takes an even greater level of maturity to subject yourself to suffering for the benefit of others. In other words, it's one thing to learn how to endure suffering uh, in your own life. It's an entirely other thing when you develop the eyes of empathy and you begin to see those who are suffering in your life and you willingly expose yourself to suffering that is not even your own for the benefit of the name of Jesus and the good of that person. Because truly, one of the greatest ways that God wants to display His love, His goodness, His hope, His joy, His peace, all of these wonderful promises God has given us, we often think that the best way they can come about in the world is through the miracles. In fact, that's a lot of what's going on with these these things Jesus is doing, you have crowds of people throughout the book of John simply following Jesus because they want him to miraculously fix something in their lives. And what's interesting about miracles is that the reason we call them miracles in the Christian faith is because they are rather rare. If, if a miracle signifies something that doesn't happen normally, at least in part. And so what I want to say here is that it's not always a miracle or, or flipping a light switch that is the way God works in our lives or in the lives of others. And when it comes to the way God works in the world, I really want to encourage you to, to think about the persistently miraculous way God has chosen to work through the world. No longer, at least in this season of life, this era of the church, no longer does Jesus stand physically with us healing people like this. What's happened is, because Jesus is the light and life of the world, and those of us that love and follow Jesus, we know that that light and life exists in us. We are never separated from it. What that means is the way Jesus miraculously chooses to work in the world today is not through spit and mud. It's through you, you and I. We, if you really think about it, are the miracles. We are the redeemed evidence of how God made something very beautiful out of the mess of sin. And so don't walk around this life thinking about what God can do in the world. Really, the charge I leave you this morning is to think about how God wants to use your life to display the light of Jesus to the world. Think about this. Wherever you go, the hope of Christ goes with you. Wherever there is suffering, whether it's in your own life or the life of others, the peace of Christ goes with you. And so the true miracle of the way God works in the world today is really through the words and the deeds of the men and women who call him God the Father and seek to follow him, love him, and their neighbors as self. And so truly, our redeemed lives 
they, they are a miracle in and of themselves. And it's one of the main ways, not the only way, but it's one of the main ways that God seeks to bless the world now through. It's through you, you and I. And as we begin to close, I want to give you what is the most concrete example we have of the truth that we're looking at today. Just look at Jesus on the cross. If you were to have said to the disciples before all of that went down, Jesus' crucifixion, that the best way or what we need to do right now uh, for God's plan to fully be worked out in the world is to take this guy you love. We're going to allow him to be uh, illegitimately captured, falsely imprisoned and accused of a bunch of stuff, and then put on a cross and essentially murdered for something he didn't do. If we would have said to the disciples, hey, what do you guys think of this plan? Every single one of them. And I would have been the same way. I would have said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, this, there's no logical reason what's going on here. Why would we put an innocent man who did nothing on a cross and, and kill him? Why would we do that? Yet we do know now, though, that God intended to relieve the suffering of all of humanity through his own suffering. There was a moment in the life of the disciples where they could not see beyond the moment they were in. And some of the disciples, mainly Peter, they tried to stop Jesus are being taken. We can actually physically see that, that they impulsively reacted to what was about to happen and tried to stop it. We know Jesus let them know that it was not to be stopped. It was, it was meant to be. His son's suffering, right? Jesus on the cross brings redemption and hope to the world. And so it is actually through suffering that God's grace is revealed to the world in ways that would have never been revealed to the world apart from it. And that's why Paul prays for what he prays for in Philippians. He recognizes, I don't, I don't think he's like in a way where he's sort of trying to bring pain upon himself, asking God to cause him to suffer. But what he's recognized is to, is to see suffering, to recognize the role that suffering plays in life. It has such a, a significant impact on our lives in the world that God can do incredible things through it that he wants to identify with that type of suffering the type that Jesus displays to the world on the cross. And so as we begin to wrap up this morning and, and move towards the beginning of a new week, let me say this. It's interesting, we didn't look at this, but John chapter 9 ends with this question, okay? So this, this great miracle has happened, and people are in awe, they've just seen a blind man healed. And the last thing John tells us at the end of this little section of his writing is that people are asking the question, where is Jesus? And it's, it's rather fitting that the last thing that is said in a moment where there is great suffering going on is people are looking around trying to figure out where Jesus is. And this is probably the battle cry of our hearts in the moments of our, our darkest hours. Is we wonder where God is. Like, how could this be happening? Or where, where is Jesus in all this? If you read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you know the idea behind this is, where is Aslan? Where, where is he when we need him most? So the people want to know where Jesus is when it comes to the shadows and the trials of life that they're enduring. And just like today, I'm sure there were mixed responses in that crowd. I'm sure there were some people that had varied motives, good and bad, that were asking that question. Some were looking to make Jesus a scapegoat for the world's problems. They basically wanted to say, like, well, he's the reason that all of this is go going wrong. He, if he's the God of the world, why is this stuff happening? We're going to actually look at that next week. Then you had the Pharisees, rather interestingly, who, who look at this situation and they don't see any kind of compassion for the healing of a man. They say, he just broke the Sabbath and we've, we've got to arrest him for this goodness. In other words, he healed somebody on the Sabbath and, and uh, that is absolutely a sin in the eyes of God. They're so blinded that they can't even see and recognize that, that God's goodness is not bound by days or hours. It, there's no barrier that keeps God's goodness from moving forward. 
And there were some, I'm sure, that just wanted to seek Jesus in a utilitarian type of way. They were just saying like, hey, we heard you make bad things go away. Can you please make this bad thing go away? And lastly, there were some, I am sure, because there always are, there were some that were so moved by Christ's compassion that they simply wanted to meet the guy who was compassionate. They wanted to get to know him. In other words, they, they realized that if they were going to deal with the hardship in their life, if we are going to be the type of people who don't just sort of, you know, sort of coast through life hoping it works out, but we live with a humble confidence that we've been given this authority in Jesus to, to persevere and to thrive through suffering. What happens is we, we can become the type of person who doesn't necessarily look at what's going on in our lives with, with happy eyes, but we can look at what's going on in our world with eyes that have a, a sense of trust behind them because we know God has not left us or forsaken us in those moments. We have to learn to see our world through the eyes of our God, the circumstances of our world through the eyes of our God. And to help us do this, I leave you this morning with the very same quote that I left you with last week from, from N.T. Wright about this very truth, because I think it is, as far as words outside of the scripture, perhaps one of the best summations of what has to happen for us to be the type of people that genuinely understand suffering and the, the purposes and the goodness that can come out of things that seem very troubling or problematic. Listen how N.T. Wright describes how Jesus addresses these faulty ways of believing regarding suffering. He says, Jesus firmly resists that this is the way God has ordered the world. The world is much stranger than that and darker than that. And the light of God's powerful, loving justice shines more brightly than that. But to understand it all, we have to be prepared to dismantle some of our cherished assumptions and to let God remake them in a different way. And he goes on to say, we have to stop thinking of the world as some kind of a moral slot machine where people put in a good coin, a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. That's the karma stuff. And he rightly points out that, of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions, as uh, kindness can produce gratitude. And bad things often happen through bad actions. He says, you know, drunkenness can cause car accidents. But these realities are not inevitable. Sometimes kindness is scorned, and sometimes drunkards always get away with it. The, the sort of equilibrium we desire in this world is not always as equal as we want it to be. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, where are you right now with your own life, with all that's going on in the world? How do you see or sense the goodness of Jesus in your life? And know this, that Jesus is not trying to hide his goodness from you. Suffering, no matter what the cause of it in our lives, is not God's way of hiding himself from us. In fact, if anything we see in the scripture, no matter what the origin of the suffering is from, it's one of the places God most dominantly chooses to reveal himself to us through. God wants us to know him. The very nature of him coming to the earth shows that he wants to be known, and he wants us to know him. And so ask yourself, when it comes to however it is you see or sense suffering in the past or present, maybe you're in a good spot in life right now. We all know no one escapes suffering in this world. Maybe this is a truth you have to bank in your heart for, for a day that is ahead of you. Or maybe it's a truth you have to bank in your heart for somebody whom you love who is deeply grieving right now. When it comes to your current life circumstances and how you see them, what is it that Jesus is saying to you about them? And what is it that you will do about them as you get on with your life in the days that follow?
pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you for for your scripture and for a powerful passage of scripture that really shows us some very important things about life. Um, you you speak clarity into a lot of confusion. And what we take away from all of this is that our circumstances, good or bad, are, are not an evidence necessarily, always anyways, of your love for us or some form of animosity that you hold against us. The greatest place that we can turn the attention of our hearts to determine how you see and care for us is the cross. And so I pray, Lord, no matter where we are today, if it is very far from you, if we are steeped in sin and far from you, that we would look to the cross and see and sense the goodness and the grace, the forgiveness you offer at it. And if you are the type of person today that, that maybe is very close with God, maybe you are in a season of life where, where you feel very close to God, that's an incredible and a powerful thing. And I pray that you would not live that life in isolation. It is our prayer that you would find somebody Pour into them. Let them see and experience the goodness and the grace you know exists in Jesus. Disciple them to see and sense the same things. God, we rest in the fact that no matter where we are, you are always one step away from us. And I pray no matter where we find ourselves today, that we would fix the eyes of our hearts upon you and the grace of your son, Jesus, and that we would learn to love you, that we would be in love with you more deeply at the time of our ending of this time we have together today than when it began. We thank you for Jesus and ask all of this in his name. Amen. Now listen, church, uh, in like two minutes you'll be on your way doing your thing, whatever that is. Uh, I want to encourage you this week to think about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, uh, I want to thank you again for your continued uh, generosity and support uh, for the mission and uh, ministry of, of restoration, excuse me, uh, for the better part of 10 years, you have uh, faithfully supported our church with your tithes and your offerings. And so uh, if you are a gospel partner, a member, or just somebody who's visiting with us and wants to uh, make a contribution to either support the, the work we're doing or we have a specific fund set up for COVID-19, I want to thank you for your generosity there and encourage you to continue on it. You can give either on our website under the Give tab or you can mail in a, a check to our main office address, all of which can be found on our website and will be linked in this post today. And I also want to encourage you, when you think of generosity, um, much like worship, it's not meant to just take place in one specific entity, meaning our generosity is not meant to be used alone for our church, although that's important. There are going to be ways and opportunities you can serve your neighbor through dollars and time as you leave your home and go out into your world, whatever that looks like this week. So remember, the church is a place to be generous, but it's not the only place the generosity of Jesus is meant to be shown. And I encourage you to ask God to give you the eyes of empathy to see the places you can bless people in the name of Jesus. Last thing I'll say today is, is to really think about uh, connecting with us beyond this hour. Consider plugging into a community group or consider a next step. If you have a question about your life or your faith, if there's something you disagreed with today, if you have a question about something that was said today or sung today, we are a church that values the process of growing in the grace of Jesus. So there are no questions that are off limits at this place. 
even the ones that cast significant doubt on the things that have been said today. We love to deal with men and women who are journeying with Jesus because we all are doing the same thing in one form or another. We're all on this journey together, and we invite you to be a part of it with us. So please don't walk alone this week if you have questions about life or faith or what it means to know Christ. Let us know. Contact a friend. Reach out to your community group or just get in touch with us in general, and we'll do our best to to get you to the place where Jesus is leading you. Now, as you get on with your week, I want to encourage you to remember that God is good. That might be a statement that, that comes out of the mouths of people sometimes in a trite way, but I want you to know that it is true. The veracity of that statement is incredibly powerful. God is good. And I pray that you would live with that at the epicenter of your hearts this week. And as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father in heaven, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Stay safe. Amen.